0: The year 480 BC. The place Thermopylae. A crushing defeat is somehow spun into a symbolic victory in a warrior legend. It is one of the greatest propaganda victories in world history. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back from the holiday break. This is still the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 17, the Spartan PR Department. This is my examination of the Greek city state of Sparta, its military reputation, and how it was constructed. And I am super excited to bring you guys along for the ride. Just so you guys know, today is a slightly longer episode than usual. I tried to crunch it down, but I failed, so here we are. Hey, more content, right? As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on, especially today. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not, not, not. There is a content warning today because I will be discussing sexual assault and rape. Not in graphic detail, but it will still be more than a throwaway sentence, so please, please be forewarned. All my sources, some images, some maps, some commentary, and a couple of lists I'm going to mention during today's episode will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's meet the Spartans. All of the Spartans. Who were history's greatest warriors? Pop culture has one and only one answer for you. The Spartans, of course. We have Spartan races, Spartan athletic challenges. We have high school football teams and military units and bags of coffee with a Spartan helmet on it. The super soldiers of the Halo video game franchise are called Spartans. And if there's ever a lone wolf action hero from ancient Greece, he is always a Spartan. And, of course, there is the legend of the Battle of Thermopylae, where King Leonidas and his 300 Spartans fought to the death against Persia, which has gotten comic books and a very large-budget well-known movie. For many people in the modern world, if they know of only one battle from ancient history. It's Thermopylae, the template for all future heroic last stands what a lot of people don't know is this is not a modern phenomenon. The Spartans have been famous for centuries, millennia, as some of history's greatest warriors, and you'll see this reputation being perpetuated from the Romans, to the Renaissance, to the Industrial Revolution, to now. It is so widely believed that very few people will argue with it. What a lot of people also don't realize is that it's just, well, not true. The Spartan reputation is, in fact, one of the greatest propaganda victories in human history, the result of a relentless and effective PR campaign that created what French historian Francois Ollier called the Spartan Mirage. Despite being some of the most well known combatants in the history of the world, guys, this is a story of unknown soldiers, and not just the Spartans, but the people who fought beside them or against them that have been utterly forgotten in the service of creating this myth. You might be wondering, James, why are you talking about Sparta? I thought you were supposed to be telling me something that I didn't know. Oh, don't worry. By the end of this episode, you will understand. Because today I will be directly addressing the mythology of the Spartan military reputation. I'm going to bust three myths. Number one, that Sparta's form of government and education produced the great Spartan super soldiers of legend. Number two, that the Spartans were dominant on the ancient battlefield. And number three, the very core of the myth, the 480 BC Battle of Thermopylae as the defining moment in Sparta's history. Because it wasn't. In my mind, the defining moment of Spartan history came in 371 BC. My goal here, as always, isn't just to bust myths, though I plan to burst the Spartan super-soldier myth as neatly and as quickly as I can. And this includes its most famous modern incarnation, the 2007 Zack Snyder movie 300. If you still want to go on your Spartan runs and put Spartan bumper stickers on your car or enjoy the movie 300, well, maybe this ain't for you, or maybe it is for you. I think the truth is more interesting than the myth. It certainly has more to teach us. I want to accomplish two other things today along the way. First, To show how the Spartan PR department didn't just create a reputation, but that this reputation became part of Spartan military power. That is, people said they were strong, and that made them strong. Second, to show how the Spartan military reflected its society, and vice versa, in its obvious strengths and its not-so-obvious weaknesses, and how the broken Spartan society ultimately led to a broken Spartan military and eventual destruction. So, today, we'll be talking about the Spartan military reputation and how it measures up to reality. I will do this in a slightly longer than usual episode of four parts. Part one will cover the Spartan government and society. Part two will be the Spartan report card, a very brief overview of Sparta's record in warfare and how they measure up to the legend. And in parts three and four, we will get up close with two battles. The famous Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC that created the propaganda of the Spartan warrior, and the less famous one in 371 BC that should have shattered it. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic trek through ancient Greece, there will be breaks. Those are your chance to pause, recharge your headphones, go to the supermarket, do the thing you need to do. So paint that lambda on your shield and polish your bronze helmet, because we're going on campaign. The first part of this episode is going to directly address a central myth of Sparta's modern reputation, that it was an equal and free society with a good government, and a mixed program of education and military training that produced the world's greatest warriors. So to understand the military myth of Sparta, we need to understand the government, economy, and society that created it, because these will create the Spartan military. These reflect the Spartan military. You can't separate a military from the society. And to understand this, we need to start with Lycurgus. Our story begins anywhere from 1000 to 600 BC with the alleged creation of the Spartan Constitution by its mythical founder, Lycurgus, a man one historian has called a combination of George Washington and Pol Pot. The story goes that Lycurgus instituted a set of reforms, the Spartan Constitution, the rules and obligations and practices that Sparta is known for to this day. That includes the laws of equality, the upbringing of children, the role of women, the role of the military, and of course the famously severe laws of discipline and punishment. One day Lycurgus left Sparta, but only after his people swore to uphold his laws until he returned. Lycurgus never did return, starving himself to death in exile so his people would always follow the divinely created laws he had established. Besides the obvious lunacy of that ending, what, was just retiring somewhere and hanging out too good for you? Well, there's a real question as to whether Lycurgus even existed. Historians debate that to this day. Our main source for Lycurgus's life and laws is the Roman historian Plutarch, who was writing multiple centuries after Lycurgus supposedly lived, and who openly admitted that it was nearly impossible to write his biography, since nearly every fact Plutarch had heard from one source was contradicted by another. We don't even know when this dude lived, only that it was allegedly sometime between 1,600 and BC. Lycurgus might have just been a face that the Spartans slapped on their entire system to give it a veneer of legitimacy. So whether or not Lycurgus founded this system, what did it look like? The myth we're addressing is that the Spartan system produced these deadliest warriors, these great super soldiers. One of the big problems in peeling aside the Spartan myth is that the Spartans, with a number of exceptions that you can count on one hand, didn't write. We have very few surviving works of any kind from the Spartans, though we have plenty talking about the Spartans. The Spartans just weren't big writers. And this is not only not helpful for historians, this tells us a lot about what Sparta thought was important. Even the laws of Lycurgus weren't written down, every Spartan just had to remember them. Which, yeah, what are the chances those remained unchanged throughout Sparta's history? So the only sources we have for the Spartan way of life come from the outside looking in. The Spartan government consisted of two kings descended from two different dynasties, a council of five ephors, annually elected to serve as an oversight committee, and another council of 30 elders known as the Gerousia. The kings, the ephors, and the Gerousia all had different powers that produced a pretty darn efficient system of checks and balances on each other, preventing any one group from gaining too much power. The kings were not all powerful and could be brought up on charges, by the ephors of the Gerousia. Now this system was not perfect, Lord no, but it gave Sparta relative political stability compared to the rest of Greece. In fact, Sparta was admired in ancient Greece less for its military ability and more for its alleged good government. The Spartan government was viewed as stable and non-chaotic, but as we'll see later, that was actually more of a problem than you might think. So let's get into the Spartan upbringing, the supposed training system that produced elite Spartan warriors. One of the more famous aspects of Sparta is that when a child was born, they would be inspected by the Gerousia and if found to be, um, defective, would be ritually killed by being thrown into a chasm on Mount Tegitos, literally called the Deposit. Yep, that's where this messed up baby belongs, in the Deposit. Now, infanticide was not unusual and is not unusual in pre-modern societies, but this sort of institutionalized, rigid, governmental infanticide was unusual. Uh, this form of eugenics would later be praised by, checks notes, Hitler! Yep, totally healthy society. Young male Spartans were forcibly taken from their families at the age of seven to be reared in what was called the Gay, or the upbringing, the Spartan education system. The agoge was designed to create disciplined and tough citizens. The Spartan boys were under close, harsh supervision by older boys who would beat them severely if they stepped out of line. They were intentionally underfed and encouraged to steal food. But if they were caught, they were also severely beaten. Plutarch himself witnessed some boys die from these beatings. These could be lethal beatings. And this was not normal for ancient Greece. Other Greeks commented on how cruel and harsh the Spartan upbringing was. Not that physical violence and maltreatment were the only feature of the Agoge. Spartan boys were taught reading and writing as well. There was a large focus on athletics, discipline, and hardening, and most Greeks commended the Spartans for their athletic abilities. But what is noticeably absent from the ancient sources is that the Agoge didn't contain any sort of weapons or military training. The focus seems to have been on creating citizens hardened to mistreatment and violence, not soldiers or warriors. At the age of 12, young Spartan boys would be assigned an, um, older partner, usually a man in his 20s. Some sources disagree, but most sources and most historians today explicitly state that this relationship was sexual. And the Spartans were well known for this. There is a part in the movie 300 where Leonidas mockingly calls the Athenians boy lovers, but it was Sparta in ancient Greece that had this reputation for being a bunch of pedophiles. Greek pederasty is a complicated subject that I'm not going to get into, but there was a real element of institutionalized child rape to the Spartan system. Now, this relationship was supposedly voluntary, but A, children cannot under any circumstances consent to a sexual relationship with an adult, and B, consider the social pressure. The older Spartan often functioned as a sponsor, as a connection for their future career and acceptance in society. This is not someone these boys could afford to estrange. A Spartan was an adult at the age of 20 and this made him eligible for military service, but only at age 30 was he a fully fledged Spartan citizen. By this point, two things should have happened. The first was that he had to be accepted into a sisiton, a mess group. Failure to be accepted meant ostracism from Spartan society, and now we see where rejecting your older counselor slash rapist might end up posing a problem, right? The second thing was that a Spartan was expected to marry. But until a Spartan was 30, he was not allowed to live with his wife. He still had to live in the barracks with other Spartans. When a Spartan did marry, well, his wife would have her head shaved, be dressed as a man, and be left in a dark room where the Spartan would sneak in, and they would experience what I can imagine was a less than romantic wedding night for both parties. This was supposedly to teach moderation in sex and avoid physical exhaustion, according to Lycurgus but it sounds to me more like they needed to wean these Spartan men into having sex with women after a decade or so of male rape. So like I said, totally healthy society. So this was the Spartan upbringing that supposedly produced a super soldier. Okay, sure, not sure how the massive amounts of rape were supposed to play into that, and this is less similar to any sort of military training or fitness program than it is to Best case scenario, a particularly brutal hazing program from a toxic military academy or a sports team. Worst case scenario, historian Brett Devereux has compared the Spartan Ago Gay to the indoctrination of child soldiers in modern sub Saharan Africa. So the Ago Gay was less education, but more indoctrination, less training but a collective brokenness that trapped men together in a twisted form of kinship. It was like a country that ran entirely on Stockholm Syndrome. They were bonded by a shared trauma, and to reject the system would be to reject their entire identity. Totally healthy society. Again, I harp on this. This was considered unusual in ancient Greece. Other Greeks thought it was messed up. But notice that something is missing from all of this. These guys aren't really taught a skill. There are no weavers, no blacksmiths, no farmers, no craftsmen, no merchants. According to the laws of Lycurgus, Spartan men were not allowed to do physical labor or perform a trade, and they looked down on those who did. There's this scene in the movie 300 where Leonidas mocks his Greek allies for having professions other than that of warrior. You know, Spartans, what is your profession? We're warriors. The Spartan man's only duty was to fight. No other city in Greece had a group of men whose only purpose was to train for warfare, which is supposedly what made Sparta such an elite military force. But we'll get to that more coming up. Because now you're saying, wait, so who is doing the physical labor? Who are the blacksmiths, farmers, and weavers? Someone's gotta be, right? Yeah. But now we get to that whole equal and free society part of the Spartan myth, of the Spartan propaganda line because Sparta was a slave society. Now, as we said before, most pre-modern societies had some form of slavery. And all Greek cities had slaves, had slaves and unfree populations. Every ancient Greek city had three levels of society, free citizens, free non-citizens, and non-free peoples or slaves. We call that first class, the actual Spartan citizens, the people we've been talking about so far who went through this horrible, brutalizing system of the agoge, the Spartiates, the Spartiates, it's pronounced both ways apparently, or the peers. These Spartiates are the upper class, the elites, the true Spartans that we think of when we picture the elite Spartan warrior, Leonidas' 300 were all Spartiates. So remember, this is how Sparta treated the people who supposedly mattered. Below the Spartiates were a subcitizen class called the periokoi, literally the dwellers around. These guys were not Spartan citizens, but they were free people who lived in Spartan territory. And the periokoi did almost all the skilled labor. They made the weapons, they made the tools, they were the craftsmen and the builders and the traders. They were essentially the middle class, They did not go through the agoge, they had no say in the Spartan government, but they weren't slaves. And below both these groups were the helots, Sparta's enormous slave population. And it was the helots, more than anyone else, who made Sparta unique. These are some of the most important people in this episode. If we look at the other Greek cities and try to figure out what made them different from Sparta at the very core, not the laws, not the society, not the military, what was the core difference between Sparta and every other Greek city, that's your answer. They didn't have the helots. Many Greek cities had lots of slaves, but Sparta had an unusual amount, outnumbering Spartiates and Periokoi combined by a massive margin. And again, uniquely, the helots were composed not of foreigners. These weren't uh, random slaves they bought overseas. The helots were Greeks. They were other Greeks, and they were owned by the Spartan state itself. Sparta, uniquely among all other Greek cities, had this massive economic underclass to support the upper class. Some of these helots were native to the Spartan home region of Laconia, but most lived in Messenia. Spartan conquered Messenia sometime around 700 to 600 BC and reduced the entirety of a once free Greek population to slavery. And this was not easy. It took two major wars to accomplish this, wars in which the Spartans suffered several major defeats and the Messenians revolted all the time. But these colossal populations of unfree people were the basis of the Spartan economy. So my point here is that most human beings living in the Spartan state were not the elite Spartans of popular legend. The Spartiates were the tiny tip of a pyramid that was built on the enormous misery of the people below. Very healthy society. I want to drive this point home as hard as possible. Something like 85% of Sparta's entire population were helots. That is a staggering slave underclass. I don't know of any ancient society that was this unbalanced. Not even ancient Rome during the Spartacus uprisings. The American South in 1860 had only a third of its population in chains, and that was terrible. That was one of the cruelest systems that ever existed on the American continent. But the helots are most of the people in Sparta. If you ask a genie to send you back in time and make you a Spartan, it's very likely that you will be a helot. Or, if you're lucky, a periocus. So my advice, do not do that. And the helots were treated like subhumans on a level that would astonish the worst slaveholder in the American South. If the Spartiates learned one thing through the agogae, it was that might makes right, that abuse and cruelty are what makes a real man, what makes a real Spartan. The Spartiates maintained control over the helots through absolute terror. They had to, the helots outnumbered them by an enormous margin. There was a yearly ritual where the ephors declared war on the helots C- ceremony like we declare war on the helots once a year which basically gave the spartans a blank check to kill any helot they wanted without legal or religious repercussions in every other greek city killing a slave was at least a crime there was an elite unit of the spartan army the kryptea whose only purpose was to run around in the middle of the night and murder helots, especially those that seemed like they were causing trouble or that were unusually strong or attractive. This We're not sure who made up the Cryptaeus still to this day, but it's possible that it was a rite of passage for all young Spartiates. There's this scene in the movie 300 where the young Leonidas is sent into the wilderness to kill a wolf as part of his military training. This, this is not true, this did not happen. In reality, the young Spartiate would have been sent into the fields at night to kill an unarmed helot who was just minding his own business. It served both to brutalize and indoctrinate the elite Spartan soldiers into their dominant position, and to terrorize the helots by removing the strongest of their number, like a sort of reverse eugenics. Super healthy society. And, of course, if these elite young Spartan men, full of pent-up aggression and repressed sexuality, with a superiority complex and a weapon in their hand, ran across a helot woman in the middle of the night, well, what do you think happened? We know what happened, because there was an entire Spartan class called the Mothakoi, or the bastard sons of Spartiate fathers and helot mothers. I do have to address the legend of Spartan women real quick. It is true. It is true to a degree, that Spartan girls and women were freer than in any other Greek state. Girls were brought up in a parallel but less brutal version of the agoge, the only system of female education in ancient Greece. Spartan women, uniquely in Greece, could inherit and own land. But Spartan women could only manage this freedom because they, unlike women in every other Greek state, did no labor. All the labor was done by the helots. The spartan definition of freedom depended in every way on the system of helot slavery. Would you call a southern plantation-owning woman of the antebellum era a feminist icon, since her entire way of life, her entire freedom, existed on the backs of slaves? And considering what helot women were exposed to, both their own rape and the murder of their husbands and fathers and sons for no reason at all, could we call this a remotely pro-woman society? At age 30, every Spartiate was supposed to inherit a plot of land with a large number of helots. These helots would provide all the food and material goods meant to support the lifestyle of the Spartiate. The elite Spartan warrior of legend only had the time to train and develop his skills as a fighter because of this massive system of unfree labor that backed him up, that provided him with unusual amounts of food and nutrition, and allowed him to live a life doing no physical labor. No other Greek city had this warrior class or Sparta's military system, because no other Greek city had Sparta's slave system that underpinned it, that allowed it to exist. Oh, and one thing is very clear, the Helots and even the Perioikoi did not take this line down. They were willing to revolt at the drop of a hat to overthrow the, like, 6% of Sparta's population that had oppressed them for centuries. The slave population was so huge that Sparta was constantly terrified of a slave revolt, for darn good reasons, I think. Multiple times in their history, Sparta would abandon military expeditions or refuse to go to war at all for fear of a helot uprising. The helots, the periokoi, all the underclasses despised their oppressors. According to the Greek historian Xenophon, Whenever among these classes any mention was made of Spartiates, No one was able to conceal the fact that he would be glad to eat them raw. The point I'm trying to make is that the Spartan education and military training, the Spartan, you know, training system, wasn't the real basis of the unusual ability of the Spartan soldier. It was this vast pyramid of cruelty, slavery, and terror that enabled it. This was the unique basis for the Spartan way. The Spartan warrior culture was intrinsically linked to the Spartan slave economy. You cannot separate the Spartan military and the Spartan society. One reflected the other. One produced the other. The Spartan military system relied on slave labor to sustain it. Take away that labor, and the system breaks down. Maybe it's dawning on you already, if not, I'll spell it out for you. The Spartan military system was not created to wage war against other Greek states, at least not originally. It was created to maintain supremacy over the helots. Sparta feared no enemy more than it feared its own hungry, desperate slaves. And the Spartiates were obsessed with combat, to the exclusion of everything else. Sparta was a surprisingly unimpressive city to look at compared to Athens or Corinth or Thebes. It was just a collection of unwalled villages. Spartans, like I said, produced next to no writing, art, architecture, sculpture. They engaged in religious songs or dances, they were well known for this, but Sparta did not really leave behind a material culture. They weren't even a financial culture. The Spartan economy was mostly agricultural and very limited. That did not mean there weren't wealthy Spartans, because not even all Spartiates were created equal. One of the big components of the Lycurgan system was that you could lose Spartiate status if you failed to gain entrance into a mess group after the Agogay. If you weren't popular enough, you lost Spartiate status. If you were convicted of cowardice in battle, you lost Spartiate status. But also, critically, if you were too poor, if you failed to contribute enough food and wealth to your mess group, there was a bar, and if you didn't meet that bar, you lost Spartiate status. This meant that any economic disaster or a bad harvest or anything like that could push you off the lower rung of the elite. There was a major earthquake in 465 BC that caused many people to lose Spartiate status because their land was destroyed. Some Spartiates, out of desperation, would sell their land. Falling off the Spartiate ladder for any reason put you in a new class, the Hypomyones, or the Inferiors, a class of outcasts only one step up from the helots. And what's critical is that there was an off-ramp. You could stop being a Spartiate, but there was no on-ramp. There was, by all accounts, no way to regain Spartiate status. Only the sons of other Spartiates could become new Spartiates. If you failed, you condemned your entire family to social death. So this is the Spartan society. Super healthy, right? Well, let's pan over all of that real quick. We have a tiny warrior elite, brainwashed and raped and indoctrinated to look down on anyone who wasn't one of them, sustained by a slightly larger middle class and a much, much larger majority of brutally oppressed slaves who would seize any opportunity to rise up and can you blame them? To cap it all off, the constitution of Lycurgus had the flexibility of a brick. Any attempt to change Sparta's laws, to make the upbringing less harsh, to redistribute wealth, to allow new men into the elite, was fiercely resisted. People were exiled, or even executed in later years, for trying to change or loosen up the Lycurgan constitution. The Spartan system, with its calcified social structure and enormous slave population, sustaining the military culture that it was famous for, could not reform, was fundamentally incapable of reform. Any hint of reform could mean the elites lost their position, lost their power, and they could never permit that. This is why Sparta's vaunted stability, its unchanging constitution, was actually damaging. And it was this inability to reform, to adapt, to change to circumstances that would dig Sparta's grave. So did this system produce military excellence? Did the Lycurgan constitution produce elite super soldiers? Spartan society was obviously an unequal, unfree, horrifying slave society where random people could be hunted for sport, built on shared brutalization and rape and trauma. But some people will say, yeah, it was terrible, but it made great warriors. Actually, let's see. Because I'd bet a broken society produces a broken military. talk about how Sparta fought its wars, we have to talk a little bit about ancient Greek warfare. This is important to understand why the Spartans gained their reputation and why they lost it. The ancient Greek way of war revolved around the heavy infantryman with a shield and long spear. This soldier was called a hoplite, from the term hoplon, which was one name for the large shield. The bronze-faced hoplon was around 18 pounds, 3 feet in diameter. The long hoplite spear, or the doru, was 8 to 14 feet long. The hoplite would also have a bronze helmet, probably a chest plate, and possibly armor on his arms and legs. Hoplites fought in a close mass formation called a phalanx, which from the outside would look like a wall of shields with a rank of spears pointing out like a thorny bronze hedge. Almost all Greek cities function on a militia system. When it was time for war, the citizens of Corinth or Thebes or Athens or Argos would be called out for battle. They had to supply their own arms and armor, so only a citizen with the money and resources to provide his own equipment could fight in the phalanx. Everybody who could fight, did fight. Even Socrates famously fought in the Athenian phalanx at the Battle of Delium in 424 BC. A Greek city's most common foe was another Greek city so a lot of open field battles in the classical Greek age ended up as a phalanx battle. Two opposing phalanxes would get in each other's faces and try to force the other side to break. There are a couple of theories on how this actually played out in practice, but my gut tells me that this turned into a shoving match, like an offensive line. It must have sounded like a continuous series of car crashes, all this bronze just slamming into each other. The hoplite phalanx had a pretty standard depth of 8 men deep, uh, extended to 10 and 12 men later in history. So if you were in the first rank, even as you were shoving and stabbing at the guy in front of you, there was pressure behind you as the dudes in the rear ranks pushed forward. There was a momentum to phalanx battle, a sort of collective physical human energy that pushed back and forth. This is why, in phalanx battle, morale was the most important element. Whichever side kept its cohesion, stuck together and kept their morale, was going to win this massive shoving match. It was a battle of will as much as it was a battle of weapons. So where do the Spartans fit into this? Well, like other Greek cities, Spartan citizens. The Spartiates, even the king, fought in the phalanx. This wasn't unusual. Every Greek state fought like this. So when you see someone dressed up as a hoplite and think, oh, they're a Spartan, No, this style of warfare wasn't unique to Sparta, but Sparta was unique in that it was the only Greek city that trained, even a little, for phalanx warfare. One of the big benefits of phalanx warfare is that it doesn't really require that much training. One of our main sources, Xenophon, outright states that hoplite warfare required almost no practice. A phalanx was a big dumb block of armored men with sharp objects, charging into another big dumb block of armored men with sharp objects. This was one of the most unsubtle forms of warfare in history. Here, stand in the big square, go towards that other big square, stab them, and don't run away. But Sparta, unlike every other Greek city-state, trained for phalanx warfare. Now, I am not saying that Spartiates were professional soldiers, not even remotely. The Spartiates did not train like a modern military. We have, of course, established that Spartiates only had time to train because of their enormous slave underclass. They were a noble elite that lived lives of leisure with the slaves doing all the work, and they spent their time and money like most Greek elites. Your average medieval knight probably trained more than a Spartiate but the Spartiates did train, our sources are clear on that. They didn't train a lot, but they did train, and this gave them an edge over other city-states that didn't train at all. If a football team only practices once a month, they're gonna suck, but they're still gonna be better than teams that don't practice at all. Even though I'm all about myth-busting Sparta today, I am going to say this. In a phalanx battle, the Spartiates had a decided edge over other Greeks, because they trained. They practiced marching in step, they practiced facing movements, they had a military hierarchy and rank structure. All of that seems pretty straightforward, right? Like, why doesn't everybody have that? Well, no other Greek city did these things. And thanks to the brutal indoctrination of the Gay, the Spartiate class had a shared bond that gave them greater cohesion and discipline than other Greek cities, which we've established was the main factor in Phalanx battle. So it did accomplish something, but again, it's hard to see how the nastier parts of the Gay really helped. Throughout most of history, the Spartans outperform other Greek cities in phalanx battle. In at least two battles, Mantinea in 418 BC and Coronea in 394 BC, the greater discipline and flexibility of the Spartan phalanx enabled them to change facing and catch their enemies in the flank. This rigid discipline, obedience to orders, and even rudimentary training gave the Spartans an edge in phalanx warfare. I want to hammer home another point, though don't get carried away. This is not an overwhelming advantage. This is an edge, not a superpower. Spartan phalanxes could be and were defeated. Spartan discipline could and did break, but less often and less dramatically than other Greek cities. The Lycurgan system was developed to create a society that was good at phalanx warfare, The supposed equality of all the Spartiates, the vast slave underclass kept in terror through combat training, the very structure of the whole system, served to create a better than average Greek phalanx. So that's what Sparta's good at. What's Sparta bad at? Oh, (laughs) alright, let's get started. See, when people say the Spartans were the best warriors, they're thinking about hoplite warfare, the phalanx battle. But the phalanx battle was not the only type of military engagement in ancient Greece, and the hoplite was not the only type of soldier. Greek warfare, like all warfare, had many diverse types of engagements. Especially in the classical Greek period we're talking about, the hundred years or so from 480 BC, our first battle, to 371 BC, our second battle, Greek warfare transformed and diversified. Greek cities innovated, confronted new obstacles, and found new ways of fighting. But one big thing we see throughout this period is Sparta failing to innovate. They cook up a really mean phalanx, but that's the only thing on the menu, and that's not gonna be good enough at a certain point. So let's go down the Spartan report card. Okay, Leonidas, your boy's getting A-plus in phalanx warfare, but what about the other subjects? This first area will be the hardest to understand for lots of people who are used to the idea of the Spartan super soldier. The Spartans were not particularly impressive individual fighters. Our sources say this explicitly. The Spartans were just as good in one-on-one combat as anyone else. They trained to fight as a phalanx, not individually. They weren't some super soldiers, one-man armies, nothing like the slow-mo meat robots of the movie 300. Sparta's arch-nemesis city, Argos, actually had the reputation of Greece's best one-on-one fighters. In 546 BC, at the Battle of the Champions, 300 Argives fought 300 Spartiates in duels to the death. At the end of the battle, two Argives and one Spartiate were left alive. The Argives didn't go through no crazy, horrifying training system, and in 1v1 duels, they actually came out on top. So, no, the Spartans weren't the best at individual combat. The Spartans also sucked at siege warfare. Whenever they came up against an obstacle larger than a battlefield barricade, they just didn't know what to do. Spartans routinely failed to use the most basic levels of siege craft, something that Athens was famously good at. At the Battle of Plataea, the great big land battle that defeated Persia in 479 BC, the Spartans had to ask the Athenians to breach the fortified walls of the Persian camp, since Athens was good at that and Sparta wasn't. There's multiple times in history where Sparta won a battle, but when they got to the walls of Athens or Thebes or Corinth or Sardis, they just sort of looked at them like, what do we do now? The Spartans never got any better at siege warfare. We find them failing at the same things decade after decade. The Spartans sucked at light infantry combat. These light infantry are troops in light armor, usually using missile weapons like javelins, bow and arrows, or slingshots. Many, many Greek cities used this sort of skirmisher soldier for ambushes or harassment, especially as the 400s moved into the 300s BC, and the Spartans completely failed to develop a response to it. They considered it to be a cowardly form of fighting. One source has the Spartans describing bows as women's weapons. Gee, you don't think the Spartans had messed up ideas about gender roles, do you? Wonder where they got that from? In the Battle of Lycaeum, in 391 BC, the Athenian general Iphicrates led his elite light infantry, the Peltasts, in a battle against a Spartan phalanx. The Spartan hoplites couldn't catch the Athenians, who used hit-and-run tactics, and wiped the floor with them. The Spartans never developed effective light infantry or an effective response to it. The Spartans never developed good cavalry. If a good cavalry force caught the phalanx in the side or the rear before it could turn and face them, it was game over. The Spartans tried to develop good horsemen, but cavalry in the ancient world was usually provided by the elites of a city. And the Spartan elites fought in the phalanx, that was the whole point of their system. They didn't like fighting this cavalry because that wasn't manly enough or something. Sparta routinely got wrecked by superior cavalry, especially from the city of Thebes and the region of Thessaly. Thessalian cavalry rode down a Spartan phalanx at Phalarum in 511 BC, and the Spartans are still getting beaten by better cavalry at Olynthus in 382 BC. They were just not good at fighting horsey boys and their own cavalry always sucked. The Spartans were almost always bad at naval warfare. Their list of naval defeats is staggering. The Athenian navy famously ran rings around Spartan fleets. In the battles of Rhyum and Naupactus in 429 BC, a heavily outnumbered Athenian navy defeated a much larger Spartan-led navy twice. Ancient navies, like navies in any period, are a very expensive force. The Lycurgan laws specifically forbade the hoarding of wealth and the use of gold and silver money, and as a result, Sparta's cash-based economy was very underdeveloped compared to the famously rich Athenian economy. The Spartans only gained naval dominance once, briefly, and that was due to outside help and funding. So that is five major areas of warfare where the Spartans were not only mediocre, but where other Greeks were better. Sparta got by for most of its history without being good at these things by allying with people who were. Whenever the Spartans needed to take a fortified position or needed cavalry or light troops or needed the navy, they had to rely heavily on allies. Sparta was so dependent on other countries for its naval power that it only won its two biggest wars with outside naval assistance. The Spartans never could have defeated the Persians without the Athenian navy, and they never could have won the Peloponnesian War against Athens without funding and ships from, well, the Persians, who were just pleased as punch to help its former enemies beat each other up. Wait, James, back up. Did you say Sparta allied with Persia? I thought the Spartans hated Persia. Not always. The Spartans only defeated Athens in the Peloponnesian War with Persian intervention and money. And the price was that they handed the Greek cities in Asia over to Persian rule. The Spartans were perfectly happy to sell other Greeks down the river to obtain Persian backing in their conflicts. Far from being a sworn enemy of Persia, Sparta was essentially the Persian enforcer in Greece for a while. So much for fighting for freedom of the Greeks, right? So when we look at all that we see that Sparta was only really good at phalanx battle, and they weren't really good enough at it to make up for all the areas where they were weak. So why was their military so dominant? Well, for one thing, Sparta was big. It was easily the largest city-state in Greece in square mileage, mainly because of its conquest of Messenia. By the time Persia invaded, Sparta dominated its home area, the Peloponnese, through a not-so-voluntary military alliance called the Peloponnesian League, It was just the largest land power in Greece. Sparta used its small edge in phalanx warfare and its much larger territory to the utmost to dominate its home area and consolidate its power. But the Spartans also sucked at diplomacy. Time and again, Sparta annoyed or angered its allies through arrogance, high-handedness, looking down on them, oh, you don't train for warfare like we do, or just being downright jerks. When Sparta defeated Athens in 404 BC and became the most powerful state in Greece, they immediately denied their allies any share in the victory and ended up at war with almost all of them in less than a decade. Sparta's bad diplomacy constantly cost them allies and friends, which, as we've seen, they really needed because those allies made up for all the areas where Sparta was weak, any of Sparta's allies would be willing in a minute to throw them under the bus, cause Sparta would always throw them under the bus if they needed to. So how was Spartan leadership? Was that any good? I bet Spartan generals were really good, right? Well, Sparta's military leaders seem to have been pretty average. There were good ones, there were bad ones. Even some of the big phalanx battle victories were marked by mediocre or hesitant leadership by their commanders. Pausanias at Plataea in 479 BC, and King Aegis II at Mantinea in 418 BC. Very unimpressive command performances, even though they're Spartan victories. Spartan kings and generals also had a bad habit of corruption and bribery whenever they went on campaign outside Sparta. It was kind of like Amish kids going wild on Rumspringa. They left the depressing, rigid society of Sparta into an outside world of riches and wealth, and it seems like they just went crazy. They couldn't help themselves. Sparta was supposed to be a society that rejected money and wealth as the corruption of the outside world. But whenever Spartan leaders went into that outside world, their discipline just collapsed. Even the kings. Fully half of Sparta's kings, or regents for those kings in the time period we're talking about, were exiled or executed for bribery or some other kind of corruption. Now, Sparta did have good commanders. I can think of four off the top of my head. Bracidus, Jalippus, and Lysander during the Peloponnesian War, and King Agislaus II in the period of Spartan hegemony over Greece. But what's odd about all these good Spartan commanders is that none of them, well, fit the Spartan ideal. They were all oddballs and didn't really fit into their society. Brasidas was the great Spartan general of the early Peloponnesian War. He led a force of allies, mercenaries, and even armed helots on campaign in northern Greece against Athens. Of the entire force, he was the only Spartiate. But Brasidas was the most unspartan Spartiate you'd ever meet. He was charismatic, diplomatic, and eloquent. A a beloved leader who got his troops to follow him because they wanted to, not because they had to. He was a creative, flexible thinker with a high energy level and a touch of military genius. But it seems like Sparta's elite was jealous of him. They thought he was unspartan and just a little bit too radical. They refused to send his successful campaign any support, and Brasidas was killed in battle in 422 BC. Jalippus and Lysander were the two Spartans most responsible for defeating Athens in the Peloponnesian War. Jalippus was sent to Syracuse to lead its defense against Athens, which he did brilliantly, destroying the Athenian fleet and turning the tide of the war. Lysander was Sparta's only great admiral, coordinating the alliance with the Persians and defeating Athens' navy to end the Peloponnesian War. But neither Jalippus nor Lysander was a Spartiate. They appear to have both been Mothakoi, the illegitimate sons of Spartiate men and Helot mothers, though Jalippus somehow ended up in a mess group. Both of them fell from grace. Jalippus was exiled for corruption, while Lysander fell from power and died in battle. King Agislaus II was Sparta's most capable warrior king, and he presided over successful campaigns and major victories against Thebes, Corinth, and Persia. He was famously incorruptible and unbribable. He was one of the few Spartan military leaders that recognized the value of light infantry and cavalry and used them but he was also unusual. See, Agislaus II was crippled. He had a club foot. According to the Lycurgan tradition, Agaslaus shouldn't have made it to adulthood. He should have ended up at the bottom of the disposal pit. He never even should have been king, but he had been Lysander's boy partner. Yuck. And it was Lysander's political machinations that ensured Agislaus rose to power. So what do we see here? All of Sparta's best military leaders were people their wonderful system considered to be rejects, black sheep, outcasts. The fact that they still attained rank and success was in spite of, not because of, the system. So when we factor all that in, what was Sparta's actual battle record? If we have to reduce the military history side of this to a win-loss ratio, how does that pan out? Well, if we count only the major battles between the two dates we're talking about. 480 BC to 371 BC, the height of Spartan power, and I'll post this count on my website so you can see it so you know I'm not pulling your leg, we have 15 victories, 2 draws, and 17 defeats. Oof, that doesn't sound right. This is Sparta, right? It's not that, that, that counts naval battles too, so what if we take the naval battles out since we already said Sparta was bad at those? No naval battles. Sparta's win-loss ratio for land battles is 10 victories, 1 draw, and 11 defeats. Ooh, that's that's not a winning average. That's not even 50-50. So what gives? Why aren't the Spartiates, the Spartan warrior elite, the greatest warriors in history, winning more battles, the only thing they are made to be good at? Well, wait, who told you that it was the Spartiates fighting all these battles? The vast majority of the Spartan rank and file throughout their peak of power, from 480 BC to 371 BC, were not Spartiates. You heard me. The super elite soldiers who went through the terrible agoge, the only men in Greece who trained for combat, the warrior elite everyone talks about, weren't even most of the Spartan army. The Spartiates always went to war with periokoi, helots, and allies as well. The periokoi armed themselves as hoplites, though usually with less and worse equipment than their Spartan overlords, and none of that training and the unarmored helots just fought as a swarm of untrained light infantry to back up their Spartiate masters. This was just because there weren't enough Spartiates to go to war alone. They had to beef up their numbers. The ending of the movie 300 shows the narrator rallying 10,000 Spartans to fight Persia in an epic battle. The battle he's talking about is Plataea in 479 BC. The Spartans brought 5,000 Spartiates, the elite warriors that we all think of when we think of Spartans. So who were the other 5,000? They were periokoi. And what 300 also doesn't mention is that the Spartans brought 35,000 helots to the battle. So the Spartiates were a ninth of all the Spartan soldiers at that battle. But as time goes on and Sparta gets stronger, we see Spartan armies marching to war with fewer and fewer Spartiates and larger and larger numbers of periokoi and helots. Heck, by the time of the Peloponnesian War, helots are fighting as hoplites, having been promised freedom in exchange for military service. Service guarantees citizenship, sure, and maybe your son won't be murdered and your daughter won't be raped, so that's a heck of an incentive, right? By the later years of classical Sparta, the Spartiates are rarely present on the battlefield at all, usually just a handful of officers. So, the majority of the Spartan army are not these trained elites. They're just regular Greeks, often slaves. In 397 BC, Agislaus II leads an expedition against Persia. He brings 6,000 allies, 2,000 helots fighting as hoplites, and only 30, 30 Spartiates. 30 of what most people think of as Spartans. And doesn't this blow the whole myth out of the water? that Sparta was so great because of its discipline and its training and how elite and amazing its soldiers were, but those guys aren't even doing the majority of the fighting for most of the period we're talking about. The freaking slaves are doing more fighting than the so-called Spartans. Why? Why is this happening? Well, the Spartan warrior elite was shrinking. Around the time of our first battle today, Thermopylae in 480 BC, There were around 8,000 to 9,000 Spartiates in all of Sparta. 8,000 elite Spartan warriors. By the time of 371 BC, just over 100 years later, when the second important battle takes place, there were around 1,500. An 80% population decline. The Spartiates were an endangered species. What was happening? Why was the population declining? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we can think really hard. Maybe it has something to do with the infanticide, the brutal and often lethal upbringing, institutionalized child rape, keeping men and women separate for their most sexually active years, the weird Spartan gender roles in marriage system, and constantly going to war all the time. And the tiny fact that if you lost Spartiate status, there was no way to get it back. And the even tinier fact that there was no way to create new Spartiates. Any attempt to expand the Spartiate class was a dead letter, fiercely resisted by the rest of the elite who would stand to lose power. So throughout Sparta's classical period, the Spartiate class was going extinct. This was such a major issue that there was even a word for it. oliganthropia, Literally, a lack of people or too few people. And the oliganthropia was the result of one overwhelming factor the rigidity of the spartan system the restrictions and limitations that lowered the birth rate also made it impossible to create new spartiates and made it easy to lose spartiate status the lycurgan laws and traditions and values that supposedly made sparta great were slowly killing the class they had been invented to preserve the elites were fighting and ostracizing and torturing and raping themselves out of existence the helots and Koi were doing all the fighting because Sparta couldn't afford to risk its shrinking ruling class in battle. The so-called super soldiers had become too valuable to use as soldiers. And all of Sparta's weaknesses in battle, in leadership, in their social structure, in their military composition, their growing and alarming population decline, these were all a result of that wonderful system that was supposed to produce the best warriors in the world. And what do we also see? an inability to adapt to change to reform on both the military and the social level. Other Greek cities changed their ways of war, but a hundred years later, the Spartans were still fighting in the same old way. The only people willing to reform the system, people like Brasidas and Lysander, were people who didn't fit into the system and could gain no power within the system. To reform the Spartan military, to stop the population shrinkage, to change their ways of warfare, wouldn't just have required a military reform. They would have required a social reform because the Spartan military and society were one and the same. And Sparta was completely unable to reform its society because the laws of Lycurgus dragged them down, the albatross around their neck. The elites were too scared of losing power to even try and tinker with the system, the system that had created and traumatized and tortured them, the system that was slowly destroying them. So looking at all this, with Sparta's many failings, its battle record, its dismal society, and dwindling elite, how did Sparta become so famous? How did the Spartans gain their reputation as history's greatest warriors in the face of all these facts? Well, we need to see where that reputation started. We need to go to where it all began. We need to take a very close look at the real story of the Battle of Thermopylae. I said when I began this episode that I was going to examine two battles today. One in 480 BC, that created the Spartan myth, and one in 371 BC, 100 years and some change later, that should have ended it. The battle I'm about to talk about, 480 BC, is of course the cornerstone of the great myth of the Spartan warrior, the Spartan super soldier. The Battle of Thermopylae. Now James you say, isn't your show about unknown soldiers? Oh don't worry guys, there are plenty of unknown soldiers at Thermopylae. Most people have an image of the Battle of Thermopylae in their heads, it usually comes from Zack Snyder's movie 300 or Stephen Pressfield's novel Gates of Fire. I won't lean too hard on the movie 300 because I know not everyone has seen it. Of course 300 isn't history 300 wasn't even adapted directly from history it was a loose adaptation of a comic book frank miller's 300 published in 1998 that was itself inspired by a different movie the 1962 film the 300 spartans that was itself completely inaccurate but 300 is actually a pretty good distillation of the myth of thermopylae the legend of thermopylae here's how that myth goes see if this sounds familiar King Xerxes led an enormous horde of barbarians who are weak and effeminate but have somehow also conquered the known world to invade Greece and take away their freedom. Xerxes is an effete feminine king with vague homosexual overtones and accompanied by a harem representing sexual depravity. All that stands in his way are the 300 extremely manly, so manly you guys know homo, Spartans under King Leonidas and some other Greeks, but they aren't really important. Xerxes' troops swarm the Spartans in the pass of Thermopylae, who fight them off day after day in loving choreographed slow motion that makes sure you see every inch of rippling bicep no homo. But then a traitor reveals a hidden passage around the pass of Thermopylae. The Persians use this secret road to gain an unfair advantage and cheat by, um, flanking their enemy. Leonidas and the 300 Spartans make a last stand against the swarms of subhuman Persians, but they buy the Greeks' time and inspire their countrymen to defeat the Asian menace. So that's the story. And to be honest, all that exaggeration isn't really Zack Snyder's fault. The broad outlines of this story, this Thermopylae just-so story, have been in place for millennia. They were taking shape right after it happened. The weird gender stuff, the extremely racialized depiction of a bunch of brown invaders as mindless hordes, the sense that Persia somehow cheated, the famous quotes and the drama and the hero worship, these are almost as old as the battle itself. The earliest emergence of these tropes is the Greek historian Herodotus, who was writing within living memory of the battle and who we will get to. So what really happened? What really went down at Thermopylae, and how did this become the foundation of the Spartan myth? The Persian Empire was invading Greece, not because they hated their freedoms or something, but because the Greeks, particularly Athens and Sparta, had been a pain in their necks for quite a while. They had been interfering in Persia's conquest of the Greek cities on the west coast of Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, uh, Darius the the Persian emperor got upset at this Xerxes was his son and inherited his father's grudge and Xerxes like I'm gonna go I'm gonna go mess these guys up Persia sent emissaries to all the Greek cities demanding submission and most of them said sure they surrendered because well if you submitted to Persia most of the time they left you alone to do your own thing maybe you'd contribute some troops once in a while but well, that was pretty much it Persia was not a heavy-handed conqueror but Athens and Sparta refused to submit and committed the further sacrilege of killing the Persian emissaries. Now, this is portrayed as an awesome moment of defiance in the movie 300, giving us the infamous meme of the Spartan kick, but in actuality, the Spartans realized they'd made a terrible mistake about five seconds later. Killing diplomats was an enormous Greek religious taboo, and the Spartans, who were known for being religious, were like, oh no, oh no, we made the gods mad. They were immediately sacrificing to try and win back the gods' favor. They even sent two Spartiates to Xerxes' court and said he could execute them in exchange to try and wash away the stain of this blasphemy. Now, when Persia invaded Greece in 480 BC, Xerxes wasn't taking chances, he brought a truly massive army. And of course he did. He would have been hilariously incompetent to bring equal numbers to any fight on purpose. But Xerxes' numbers were probably never overwhelming. By the time of the Battle of Plataea, a year later, the Greek and Persian numbers were probably about even. Herodotus says that Xerxes had a million men, but that is not only hilariously untrue, but literally impossible. A million-man army would be ludicrously unsustainable in the ancient world. Any army of that size would starve and disintegrate before it got close to an enemy. Modern historians revise a million men down to about 300,000. Still gigantic, but within the very highest limits of ancient capabilities, or even as low as 70,000 fighting troops. So how are the Greeks going to fight this still-massive force? Well, when your army is small and theirs is big, you find a geographic choke point for what seems like the thousandth time in this podcast so far. Kyber Pass, Malta, Stirling, Gibraltar, now Thermopylae. But the position of Thermopylae was part of a bigger plan, a plan devised by a Greek alliance. The Persian army was followed by an enormous navy that provided supplies and transport for a possible amphibious assault. The plan was that the Athenian navy would head off the Persian fleet as the Spartans led the land alliance to hold off the Persian army. The two battles would be fought within miles of each other, at Thermopylae on land and Artemisium on the sea. The only location in Greece where land and sea routes, both narrowed into choke points. So the Spartans were fighting the land battle, right? Well, most of the Spartan army, as we know, did not march to Thermopylae. Their excuse was that they were celebrating a religious festival. Now the Spartans had a reputation for being extremely religious, true, but they used this reputation to their advantage. Whenever they didn't want to fight a battle for any reason, they begged off because of a religious festival. And the Spartans did this a lot. This happened in 490 BC, when Athens was being invaded by Persia and they asked Sparta to come help them, and Sparta says, can't, religious festival, y'all have fun. My gut says that Sparta saw both Athens and Persia as enemies and wanted them to wipe each other out. Athens defeated Persia anyway at the Battle of Marathon, so it was a moot point. No, the Spartans had real reasons for wanting to keep their army at home. One, because they didn't like the Thermopylae plan. They wanted to defend a different position much closer to Sparta. Two, they were always, always, always terrified of a helot revolt and worried that most of the Spartiates leaving would cause a helot revolt. Like, the helots would be, this is our chance, let's get them. But they couldn't send nobody, or that would look bad to the other Greeks. So they sent a token force of 300 Spartiates led by one of the kings, Leonidas. And Leonidas, despite being played by Gerard Butler, was in his early 60s, technically past military age. What's weird is that we know very little about Leonidas compared to other Spartan kings or other Greeks of the time. His character, his personal life, his motivations are mostly a blank to us. But okay. So Leonidas plus 300 Spartiates went to Thermopylae. But you've listened to the last two sections of the episode, right? And you'll notice I said Spartiates, not Spartans. That's right, good catch. Because all the historical records say that 1,000 Spartans went to Thermopylae, but only 300 Spartiates. So who were the other 700? Absolutely, they were periokoi. Not the Spartiates periokoi. But wait, there's more. That number doesn't include the helots, who were specifically mentioned as being among the dead at Thermopylae and even got their own burial mound. Each Spartiate brought seven helots to the Battle of Plataea one year later. But let's lowball that and assume three helots per Spartiate. So we're looking at 300 Spartiates, 700 Periokoi, and 900 helots, all of whom will be fighting. Not 300 Spartans, 1,900. Hmm. You know who's not in the movie 300? One single helot or Periochus. Here guys, here are your unknown soldiers at one of history's single most famous battles, the Spartans who weren't Spartiates. But wait, there's more, because the Spartans didn't go alone. They went at the head of an alliance. At, at Thermopylae, at the battle, that alliance included <clears throat> 800 hoplites from Thespe, 500 from Tegea, 500 from Mantinea, 120 from Orchomenus, 400 from Corinth, 200 from Phleus, 80 from Mycenae, 400 from Thebes, 1,000 from Arcadia, 1,000 from Phocis, and 1,000 from Locris. That is a total of 6,000 allied Greeks. Add this to the Spartans, all the Spartans, and you have, gosh, almost 8,000 Greeks defending Thermopylae. And get this, the thespians sent almost their entire levy, almost every man in their city, of 800. Compare this to Sparta sending only a fraction of their army. So the 300 weren't even the majority of the Spartans at Thermopylae, and the Spartans weren't even the majority of the Greeks. Leonidas was accepted as the commander of this force, probably because he brought the largest single part of the force. He positioned most of his Greeks in the pass, but sent the 1,000 Phocians to watch the Anapaea path that went around the Greek flank. This is the secret trail that was supposedly revealed to Xerxes by a traitor named Ephialtes, who was not a Spartan, but a local Greek. It is much, much more likely that Xerxes' scouts would have found this trail themselves. It's not that hard. I mean, not a huge leap of logic super tight mountain pass choke point? Well, let's find a way around that. According to the Thermopylae myth, when Xerxes demanded that the Greeks surrender their weapons, Leonidas's response was, come and take them. Translated roughly as Molon labe," this is a super snappy quote. Everybody likes this quote. It's everywhere today. It also ignores that, well, Xerxes did. That's what happened. They said, come and take them, and Xerxes said, huh, all right, if you insist. It's like when people say their personal love story is Romeo and Juliet. I encourage you to finish the story before making that comparison. Come and take them? The Persians did. They they came and took them. When Xerxes attacked the extremely narrow pass at Thermopylae, each city's soldiers took their turn in the pass. It wasn't the Spartiates fighting the Lonely Battle of 300. No, this was a force of about 7,000 Greeks who rotated in and out to allow the other units to rest. Everybody did their part. And all of them did just as well as the Spartiates because it's not that difficult to defend a narrow choke point from larger numbers. This is literally what Phalanx Battle was designed for. The Pass of Thermopylae was a perfect place for it. And from the sound of it, Xerxes seemed to be testing the Greek defenses more than launching an all-out assault to see if this was going to be a serious problem. Because he was on a timetable. Every Mediterranean campaign is a timetable. We learned that back on Malta. If it got to the autumn, the weather would come in and that would be the end of Xerxes' expedition. And the Greeks knew this. One of the biggest problems with Thermopylae's portrayal as a heroic last stand is that the Greeks were trying to win. They did not plan to lose. They did not, this wasn't a suicide mission. They planned to present Xerxes with a geographic choke point that he could not pass, which would slow him down, drain his supplies, expose him to the Mediterranean stormy season, and cause him to give up and go home. There was no reason or need to be a hero. Thermopylae was not supposed to be a suicide mission. But Xerxes eventually found the mountain pass around the Greek flank and he sent his elite immortals to take this pass from the Phocians, outflanking the Greek force at Thermopylae. And to be honest, this is really something that Leonidas should have anticipated. The Persians didn't need some mustache-twirling traitor to understand how to flank a choke point. That whole narrative is silly. No, it can't be because Leonidas screwed up or the Phocians were caught napping, both possible options. It was that traitory looking guy not the single most basic military tactic a flanking maneuver what happened next is unclear one narrative has other greeks being like yeah this plan is shot we got to get out of here and leonidas throwing a fit and proclaiming that he'll stay and fight another narrative has leonidas sending most of the other greeks away while deciding to stay and fight so they can escape and to me the first narrative sounds more plausible. It sounds more like a typical Spartan, bad at diplomacy, stubborn, clinging to a failed plan in the face of common sense and logic. But it is equally possible that Leonidas did hold out in a noble sacrifice to allow his fellow Greeks time to escape. But the Spartiates were not the only ones to stay behind. The Periochoi and the Helots stayed and died. The Thespians stayed as well. All 700 or 800 of them, sources differ, all their city had to offer. And so did the 400 Thebans. So that is not 300, but around 3,000 Greeks making the last stand at Thermopylae. The Greeks moved out to fight the Persians in their last stand, and during this final battle, Leonidas was killed. The Spartans fought to recover his body and dragged it to a final hill. According to Herodotus, Here they defended themselves to the last, those who still had swords using them, and others resisting with their hands and teeth. Is Herodotus describing the Spartans? No, he's describing all the Greeks. Allegedly the Thebans surrendered, only to be enslaved, but I don't buy that narrative because Herodotus was pretty biased against the Thebans for a few reasons. But in the end, Xerxes ringed the hill with archers and rained arrows on the resistors until every last one of them was dead. Now, there is archaeological evidence of this last stand, thanks to lots of Persian arrowheads later found on the hill. So it did happen. But there are lots of stories about this last stand, all these quotes and stuff, and I have to wonder, if everyone died, where did all the stories come from? I want to make something very clear, though. Thermopylae was a defeat. It was absolutely a defeat. Someone once tried to tell me, me, with, you know, they, they, t- they try to tell me this thing with the utmost confidence of someone who doesn't actually know what they're talking about that the Spartans never lost a battle. Their single most famous battle was a complete defeat. People try to spin this into some sort of amazing triumph of arms, but that ignores that the Greeks intended to win this battle. Thermopylae was a disaster. 3,000 Greek soldiers died for no tangible benefit whatsoever. Were they killed by Leonidas' stubbornness or in a valiant rearguard action? Who knows? But it was still a defeat. I bet it didn't feel like a victory in 480 BC. You tried to stop the Persians and you failed. Your king was killed. That's not a drawl. Now, the Persians did go on to lose the war in Greece, but they lost it in the naval battle of Salamis and the land battle of Plataea, which the Spartans again tried to dodge by begging off for a religious festival, but it didn't work that time. My point is that Thermopylae didn't even really change the outcome. It was a speed bump. There is no rational way to spend this as a victory. Was it a brave, heroic last stand by 3,000, not 300 Greeks? Yes. But why would this possibly be the foundation of the Spartan myth? A defeat that brought no benefit in a last stand that they were only a small part of. Well... That's where the Spartan PR department comes in. The Spartans took hold of the Thermopylae news cycle almost immediately. They seized control of the narrative to tell the story the way they wanted it told, and that's the version that stuck. The Spartans had been fighting for the freedom of the Greeks and to stop an evil overlord. They had been the best soldiers ever, and they died to a man because Spartans never retreat and never surrender. They lionized Leonidas and his 300 Spartiates, the best soldiers and best warriors in the world who could have only been defeated by vastly overwhelming Persian hordes. And Sparta was spinning this propaganda line with an objective. They were trying to assert a dominant place over all the Greek cities. They had always thought they were better than everyone else, and with the Thermopylae story, they now had a very famous, very public battle they could say proved they were better, as long as they filed a bunch of facts off of it. Sparta wasn't pushing the Thermopylae narrative just because they wanted to honor that sacrifice or anything. They were pushing it because a certain version of the story made them look amazing. And this meant forgetting the other Greeks at Thermopylae on purpose. The Periochoi and the Helots? Vanish. The Thespians and the Thebans? Vanish. All the other Greeks vanish or are rendered useless until we only remember the Spartans. There was a marker placed at the pass within living memory of the battle with the famous inscription, Go tell the Spartans, stranger passing by, that here, obedient to their laws, we lie. Spartans, and only Spartans, no one else. A central lie of the Spartan PR department. And no one helped the Spartans push this PR campaign more than the Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus is our main source for the whole battle of Thermopylae narrative, including all those famous quotes and all the Spartan ways and how the Spartans are the best fighters ever and how they were the centerpiece of everything when they were only a small part. But he appears to have been working almost entirely from Spartan sources, and he wrote down the version of the story they wanted and also the version that sounded coolest. Herodotus was Sparta's public relations guy in spinning the Thermopylae story. It was his version of the story that stuck and has been on repeat for the last 2,500 years. It is this narrative, the Spartan propaganda narrative, that turned a mediocre, broken warrior society into the mythological super soldiers. This was a PR campaign that was so effective that it somehow turned a crushing defeat into a symbolic victory, and a last stand by thousands of Greeks, most of whom were not the 300, into the 300 alone. Heck, uh, Leonidas sent away two of the Spartiates because they were, had a eye condition and because one of them was sent as a messenger, respectively. It's not even 300, it's 298. That, they don't even get that number right. When we watch 300, We are getting the version of the story that the Spartans wanted us to believe. We are getting the narrative that the Spartan PR department worked its butt off trying to establish. We've already seen what actually happened at Thermopylae and how it doesn't match up to the myth. That's because the propaganda worked. The Spartan PR department created one of history's greatest pieces of propaganda, so effective, so inspiring, that it is being repeated to this day. And it's also effective because people want to believe it, because it's a good story. And large parts of it are a story. The Spartan PR version makes a better movie or a better poem or a better novel than what actually happened. And it was effective even in its own time. Even other Greeks within living memory of Thermopylae started to look at the Spartans differently, started to treat them with fear and respect. All Sparta had to do was say, "Ugh, Thermopylae, and other people would take a step back. And this is leading to my big point about the Spartan PR campaign. The Spartan reputation for being great at warfare, deserved or not, became a military asset. The newly created image of Sparta as the greatest warriors ever ended up translating into an actual advantage on the battlefield. It became a moral and psychological advantage in combat, especially phalanx battle where morale mattered more than anything when you think the guys you're about to fight are invincible, undefeatable, the best soldiers ever, then you're not going to be very willing to fight them, are you? The Greeks became downright scared to fight the Spartans in Phalanx battle. People facing the Spartans would just be too intimidated to come to grips with their opponents. There are some battles where whatever unit is facing the Spartans just runs away rather than even try to fight them, because everyone knows the Spartans are invincible, they never retreat, they never surrender. Other Greeks were less willing to declare war on them. People were scared of Sparta because of their military reputation, which caused them to win more battles, which caused more people to be scared of them. Is it possible that Sparta built a reputation for being good at war because they had a reputation for being good at war? Is it possible this whole myth of Spartan military might was a self-fulfilling prophecy, a perpetual motion machine that a Spartan propaganda campaign set up, that one famous defeat and a little dose of spin were all it took to create this image of the greatest warriors ever? There's a very revealing incident I want to mention. Xenophon tells us about a battle in 393 BC where a force from Argos, Sparta's enemy, is defeating a force from Sicyon, sparta's ally it's important to note here that the spartans famously used the lambda the upside down v on their shields that was their distinguishing mark that's how everybody knew they were spartans but the Sicionians used the sigma instead a group of spartan cavalry came riding up to help their allies and here's what xenophon said happened at that instant, Pasimachus, the cavalry general, at the head of a handful of troopers, seeing the Sicyonians sorely pressed, made fast the horses of his troops to the trees, and relieving the Sicyonians of their heavy infantry shields, advanced with his volunteers against the Argives. The latter, seeing the Sigmas on the shields and taking them to be Sicyonians, had not the slightest fear. Whereupon, as the story goes, Pasimachus, exclaiming in his... Broad Doric, by the twin gods, these Sigmas will deceive you, you Argives, came to close quarters, and in that battle of a handful against a host, was slain himself with all his followers. So, because the Argives didn't know they were fighting Spartans, because they saw a different symbol on the shield, because they didn't have the fear that came with fighting Spartans, they won. And if you read between the lines here, it sounds like Pesimachus was drinking a bit of Sparta's own Kool-Aid. He believed he was better than he was because he was a Spartan. The Spartan Mirage, the Spartan image, was never really all it was cracked up to be. They weren't super soldiers or gods of war. They were just flesh and blood after all, weren't they? So what happened when someone finally realized the Spartans weren't all they were cracked up to be? What happened when the Spartan PR department smoke and mirrors didn't work so let's go to our second big battle 371 bc we've seen the making of sparta let's see the breaking of sparta Sparta's military power in Greece came to revolve around the myth of Thermopylae. They were never as good in battle as their admirers believe. Their social system was cruel, oppressive, and not even very effective. They were using fewer and fewer actual Spartiates in their armies because population decline was strangling the Spartan elite. But paradoxically, in spite of all of this, Sparta rose in power. They had a leading role in defeating the Persians. They defeated Athens in the very long and complicated Peloponnesian War. They were the dominant power in Greece after that war, defeating an alliance of almost all the other Greek states in the Corinthian War. There is a window of time from around 400 BC to 371 BC, I keep using that date, 371 BC, we're about to find out why, where Sparta is unquestionably the dominant power in Greece. And this was all built on the myth the myth of Spartan invincibility. People allied with and fought beside Spartans, receiving a morale boost because of the myth. People shrank back from fighting the Spartans, intimidated by the myth. Sparta asserted a moral authority and political dominance over Greece, generated by the myth. They automatically took command of any alliance and got credit for those victories by invoking the myth. And most importantly, Sparta kept control over its own subject peoples. Even as the numbers of Spartiates shrank, through the terror of the myth. The Spartan legend became a power all its own. It was like all of Greece was under this spell cast by the Spartan PR department and the myth of Thermopylae and Leonidas and the 300. But one thing we see in all these conflicts is the Spartans being super, super, super careful not to dent that myth and to do everything in their power to sustain it. The Spartans understood how important their reputation was. If it was ever shattered, well, not only would Greece stop being afraid of them, the helots might stop being afraid of them, and that would be bad. If the helots ever realized they were like 85% of Sparta's population and acted on that, oh, oh, there would be hell to pay. This did happen once in our time period, in 464 BC, only about 15 years after Thermopylae, when a great earthquake severely damaged Sparta. Thousands of people died and a large area was devastated, incidentally by the by, driving many Spartiates into poverty and causing them to lose Spartiate status. The Messinaean helots took this as an omen and immediately rose up, and the Spartans took years to put that revolt down. It was a crazy war that they only barely won. So one of the weird things is that Sparta tends to avoid battle a lot and finds not reasons not to fight battles if they don't have to even when they're at the peak of their power. Sparta's ephors and kings are surprisingly cautious and reluctant to go to war, especially if the helots are remotely antsy. This is in contrast, of course, to the myth of Spartans loving to go to war. The Spartans almost never send any large force of Spartiates to fight in long distance campaigns, which is why Brasidas' northern expedition in the Peloponnesian War was only made up of allies, mercenaries, and armed helots. Brasidas was the only Spartiate because any action that carried a risk of actual defeat might dent the myth. And Sparta couldn't afford to lose the myth. As the Spartiate population declined, as their enemies got better at warfare, and as the Spartans stagnated, the myth was increasingly all they had going for them. That myth was badly shaken in 425 BC, during the Peloponnesian War at the Battles of Pylos and Sphacteria. The Athenians seized an outpost at Pylos on the Spartan coast, and they planned to use this outpost to help raise a helot revolt. The Spartans immediately dropped everything else they were doing and marched basically their whole army to stop this, because the helot revolt was the thing they were most afraid of. This was a long, complicated battle, but the end result was that the Athenians surrounded about 420 Spartans on the island of Sphacteria. But there was that legend of Thermopylae in the 300s, so the Athenians didn't dare to try to go fight them head on. Instead, they just pelted them with missile weapons from every angle until something unusual happened. Something that wasn't supposed to happen. The Spartans surrendered. Everyone in Greece was thunderstruck when this happened. The Greek historian Thucydides says that, Nothing that happened in the war surprised the Greeks so much as this. It was the general opinion that no force or famine could make the Spartans give up their arms, but that they would fight on as they could and die with them in their hands. Because the Spartans aren't supposed to surrender, they're supposed to fight to the death. But that didn't happen. What's more, 120 of these prisoners were Spartiates. What happened next is just as telling. Sparta offered Athens basically any peace terms they wanted as long as they got their 120 Spartiates back alive. What this shows us is that the Oliganthropia, the population decline, was already in full swing. After all, the Spartans lost 300 about 60 years ago and no one really batted an eye. The two Spartiates who survived Thermopylae were shunned and forced into suicide. But that was then. This is now. The Spartans could not afford to lose these people. There just weren't enough Spartiates left. So even though they'd surrender, which Spartans weren't supposed to do by the laws of Lycurgus, when they got back to Sparta, they were quietly forgiven and the whole thing was brushed under the rug. Now, Sparta's reputation was badly shaken by the surrender at Sphacteria. They recovered a little bit of it with the victory at Mantinea in 418 BC and the Spartan PR department got to work again spinning the defeat at Sphacteria. See, the Athenians weren't fighting fair. They were using missile weapons, women's weapons. The Spartans surrendered not because they wanted to live, but because it wasn't a fair fight, that's all. So Sparta's myth continued. It was like a pristine vase on a mantelpiece in a house full of kids, practically begging for someone to shatter it. Sparta lost battles, lost campaigns, suffered setbacks, and continued to eat itself from the inside. But as long as that reputation survived, their acknowledged dominance in the phalanx battle they would maintain their hegemony over Greece. The Spartans still served up a mean phalanx battle. They still got an A-plus in that area, even if everything else failed. And they clung to that like a life preserver. But someday, somebody was going to defeat Sparta in a phalanx battle. And that someday was 371 BC. The Spartan nemesis would be the city of Thebes. Throughout the Peloponnesian War, Thebes had been one of of Sparta's most important allies. Notice I didn't say closest. The Thebans had their own separate rivalry with Athens, and defeated them single-handedly in one of the most important victories of that war at Delium in 424 BC. With Athens downgraded in power after the war ended, the other Greek cities began to chafe under Spartan domination, and Thebes was the first and most powerful of them. By the 370s, at the height of Spartan power, Thebes and a league of central Greek cities called the Boeotian League openly challenged Spartan dominance. They were led by a group of talented young generals, among them Pelopidas and Epaminondas. Despite Leonidas being the most famous commander in classical Greek history, by my reckoning, Epaminondas was the greatest general ancient Greece ever produced. Heck, one of history's great generals. It would be Epaminondas and his Thebans that broke Sparta. Epaminondas and Pelopidas were determined to shatter the Spartan myth. Epaminondas encouraged young Theban men to challenge Spartans to wrestling matches to build up their confidence to face Spartans in combat. Like, look, these guys aren't invincible. We can beat them. Pelopidas founded his own unit of 300, the Theban Sacred Band of 150 homosexual couples. The idea was that they would fight harder because their beloved was fighting beside them. The creation of this unit of 300 was a direct slap in the face, a direct challenge to the Spartan myth. These two generals were telling their people, look, the Spartans aren't supermen, they aren't superhuman, they're just people, and we can beat them. So in 371 BC, the Spartan king Cleombrotus led an army into Theban territory. I just lost the II would have led the army, but he was old and he was actually suffer- recovering from an injury. It was an impressive army. 10,000 hoplites, Spartan and allied, and 1,000 cavalry. And fully 700 of these hoplites were the precious elite Spartiates. The real Spartans, the elite Spartans. The ones who went through the agoge, the only citizen body in Greece who trained for combat. These are your legendary fighters, 700 of them. And keep in mind, this was an enormous risk, because by 371 BC, this may have been close to half of all the Spartiates. The Spartiates are estimated to number 1,500 in 371, a fraction of their former numbers. In contrast, when the Thebans arrived at the battlefield near the town of Leuctra, they only had 6,000 hoplites and 1,500 cavalry. 6,000 hoplites versus 10,000. Not good odds. Plutarch tells us that most of the Thebans were terrified of fighting the Spartans. Not only are we fighting the legendary warriors, the best soldiers in Greece, but we're going to fight them in a phalanx battle, the thing they're best at, when we're outnumbered almost two to one, when they've brought the Spartiates? There was a big debate among the Theban generals as to whether they should fight at all, or should just negotiate for a surrender. Only Epaminondas wanted to fight, and Pelopidas backed him up. Epaminondas gave a speech and rallied his fellow generals and his soldiers. Now, we're not exactly sure what Epaminondas said, but it had to have been convincing. It probably went something like this. Yep, you're right. They're the Spartans. Everyone says they're tough, the toughest soldiers ever, but they are not invincible. They're not special. They're not super soldiers. They're not supermen. They are flesh and blood, and we can beat them. We can do it. Don't let them get in your head. Don't let the Spartan PR department tell you that you can't beat these guys because they've surrendered before. They've run before. Everybody knows it, but they just don't believe it. And we can beat them. And we will. You just have to believe you can. And this is familiar, isn't it? Imagine a football coach or a debate coach or a band director saying, yeah, we know that team's tough. We know that band is tough. But you know, Imagine telling their own people, their own guys this before competition imagine washington telling this to his continentals on their way to fight the british grant telling this to his union army before they went to fight the confederates or eisenhower telling this to his soldiers before d-day yeah those guys look tough maybe they are tough but a lot of that is what they want you to think strip away the lies the propaganda and the mythology and they're just people and we can beat them so the two phalanxes lined up for battle at luctra sometime in july 371 bc and this is where i'm going to call you back to traditional phalanx warfare almost every greek army of the day formed the phalanx in a standard formation usually 8 to 12 ranks deep even across the line standard depth with the length of the line being determined by how how many hoplites you had a larger phalanx line always outflanked a shorter phalanx line which was why the Theban decision to fight at Lyctra was such a big risk, even if they used a standard formation. Because of the tendency of the phalanx to shift to the right, the elite units were always on the right end of the line. And the Spartans lined up the way they always had, doing the same old thing that Sparta had been doing for a hundred years. Twelve ranks deep across the line, on the Spartan right, facing the Theban left, was King Cleombrotus and his elite bodyguard of 300 Spartiates, the best of the best, a king in his 300, just like at Thermopylae. But Epaminondas did what we have seen the Spartans fail to do time and again. He adapted. He innovated. Epaminondas changed up the formula of phalanx battle. Now the Thebans, especially Pelopidas, had been working on this sort of thing for quite some time. But it came to its apex at Leuctra. Rather than the balanced line of a typical phalanx, Epaminondas thinned his center and right until they were paper thin, a shallow line that would never stand up to a phalanx battle. But he packed his left, not the traditional right, with a massive column of men 50 ranks deep. And at the head of this column, he placed the sacred band. Oh, and he moved his army forward in oblique order, with the center and right of his line holding back, creating a staggered formation, while the left, that enormous column on the left, took took the lead, and everybody else moved in a diagonal line back from them, to keep from hitting the Spartan line with that paper-thin line. No one else had ever done anything like this before. The momentum and pressure of a 50-deep column, pushing forward in such a tight, deep mass, was completely new to the normally balanced Greek line. This is what my military listeners will recognize as the principle of concentration of force. Even if the Thebans were outnumbered overall, they would concentrate all their force at the point of impact. Epaminondas have created what some scholars called a human spear, but I relate to something like an armor-piercing round, or a sabot penetrator from a tank round. And he aimed it right at King Cleombrotus and his Spartiates. Elite Spartans, huh? Dodge this. The Battle of Luctra began when the Theban and Spartan cavalry charged each other and the Thebans scattered the Spartan horsemen pretty much immediately because the Spartan cavalry was always garbage. As soon as they were out of the way, the Theban infantry line moved forward. You gotta imagine Epaminondas in the phalanx, reminding his men, telling them, Remember, we can do it. We can beat them. You just have to believe it. Those are just men. Remember the pressure of the phalanx battle. Remember the momentum, the push, the shoving matches. Hordes of armored men in formation are propelling each other forward. If you're at the, imagine being in the front line as eight or nine people behind you are pressuring you forward. And now imagine that number being 48 or 49 people behind you propelling you forward. Or Paminondas' human spear rolled across the battlefield, thundering across the dusty plain of Luctra, sandals slapping and armor clanking. The Spartans didn't realize what was happening until it was too late. Hey, that line looks uneven. Why are the Thebans center and right hanging back? What's up with that? Hey, those guys are moving pretty fast. They're making a lot of noise. But it's okay. We'll win. We're Spartans. But they didn't. Epaminondas' human spear with Pelopidus' elite sacred band as the diamond tip with the immense forward momentum of 50 ranks of men all pushing each other forward barreled into the Spartan line like a runaway bus. And under the weight of impact, the Spartan line snapped like a fortune cookie. According to Plutarch, Pelopidas coming up with such incredible speed and fury so broke their courage and baffled their art that there began such a flight and slaughter among the Spartans as was never before known. The battle was over in minutes. On the field lay 400 Spartiates, including King Cleombrotus, out of 2,000 total dead. And the surviving Spartiates ran away. The rest of the Spartan troops and allies seeing this happen immediately lost heart and ran away as well. Seeing the Spartiates eviscerated like that crushed any will they had to continue the fight. The Battle of Lutra was one of the most decisive battles in history. In a matter of minutes, the Spartan illusion, the Spartan myth, was shattered. They had lost a straight-up phalanx battle, the only thing they were supposed to be good at, a battle where they outnumbered their enemy almost two to one. And the cream of Sparta's crop, the Spartiates, the elite, had not only been crushed, many had run away. The Thebans had seen the backs of people who were supposed to be the greatest warriors in the world. And oh, keep in mind, this force at Leuctra was almost half of the Spartiates. A quarter of Sparta's entire citizen population was wiped out in minutes at Leuctra, casualties they could not under any circumstances afford. And it was like a spell had been broken. Other cities started rising up. Formerly subjugated territories and towns openly broke away from the Spartan alliance. Old enemies started coming out of the woodwork to challenge Sparta because Leuctra had broken the myth. Everyone said, oh, these guys aren't so special. They can be beaten after all. But even Leuctra was not truly the breaking of Sparta. The myth had been broken, but not their power. That came the next year in 370 BC, when Epaminondas invaded Spartan territory. The Spartans lost their minds because this had not happened for centuries. No one had dared to invade Sparta. The Thebans ravaged Sparta's homeland, and what was worse, lots of Periochoian helots came out to join them, like slaves in the south joining Sherman's march through Georgia in 1864. Epaminondas even briefly threatened Sparta itself, and he finished his campaign by marching into Messenia and freeing the Messinaean helots. All of them. He set them up in a fortress city and gave them weapons and armor and told them they were free. And this action, more than anything anyone else ever did, broke Sparta, broke its back. At a single stroke, not even a battle, Epaminondas cut the legs out from under the entire system of oppression and slavery that had built the Spartan military state. This shows us the inherent weakness of the Spartan system. Defeat in battle didn't break Sparta. Losing their slaves did. That was the keystone. That was their Achilles heel. That was what made them strong. Not the military. Not the battle. Not the, not the hoplites. Not the training system or any of it. The helots. And losing those, that was it. The Messenian helots had always been the bedrock of the Spartan system. Remember how I said Sparta could only afford to be as strong as they were because the helots did all the work? Epaminondas had gone right for the jugular. He and the Theban army had broken Sparta's back. I mean, can you see this? See how the Spartan mirage vanished and the Thebans found what made Sparta strong and by removing it, ruined them. The helots have been honestly the center of this story the whole time. Sparta never could have been Sparta without them. They were not only its entire labor force, its entire economy, but increasingly they were also the army they were Sparta. They were the real Spartans, but they were never given credit for it. And when this block on the Jenga Tower was removed, the whole terrible system built on murder and slavery and rape and the arrogance and cruelty of power fell to pieces. Because Sparta was never a major power again after this. Even when Epaminondas was killed at Mantinea in 362 BC, They couldn't come back, couldn't recover from the shattering defeat at Leuctra and the disemboweling of their economy. No one took them seriously anymore. When the power of Macedon began to rise under its king Philip II and his son Alexander the Great, when they conquered Greece, when they defeated the Thebans and wiped out the sacred band at Carinaea in 338 BC, they barely even bothered with Sparta. So Philip invades Greece around 33 or so years after Leuctra and there's this famous story where Philip threatens Sparta saying if I invade Sparta I will turn you out and the Spartans just reply if. I see this exchange on Facebook and you know popular history pages the whole all the time like wow look how tough the spartans were this ignored that philip immediately did invade sparta invaded and devastated spartans northern territories and sparta didn't even try to stop him because they knew he would just annihilate them philip only left sparta living to remain a threat to other greek cities so they would look to him for protection alexander didn't even bother with the spartans because they were such a non-entity at that point that he there was no there's no reason to he left them to his general antipater who curb-stomped them at the Battle of Megalopolis in 331 BC, killing yet another Spartan king. For the next couple hundred years, the Spartans would try and fail to get their mojo back. But after Leuctra, Sparta never won a major battle again. They would try and build back up, then some passing warlord would just thrash them and go on his merry way. Multiple kings would try to reform Sparta's unreformable system, but it never worked. The illusion was shattered and the old Sparta was long, long gone. By the time the Roman Empire came marching into Greece, Sparta was a shadow of its former self, a pygmy desperately trying to be relevant in an age of giants. They rolled over with barely a fight and found themselves part of the Roman province of Achaia, left to do as they pleased. So, what did Sparta have left? What remained? Well, they had the Spartan PR department, they had their myth. And with nothing else to do, it was time to cash in on that myth. In the late Roman Republic and early Roman Empire, there was an increased interest in Greek history and culture, particularly the culture of Sparta. People like Cicero and the historian Plutarch were fascinated by the Spartan legend and wanted to see it for themselves. Rich Greeks and Romans came to see Sparta, and the Spartans obliged them. They still performed various vestiges of the old Lycurgan rituals, and they even built an amphitheater so interested observers could watch the Spartans train. This Roman amphitheater, where the Romans just came and watched the Spartans do their exercises, is one of the most prominent of all the archaeological remnants of classical Sparta. They weren't training for war or even to subdue the helots. All those were gone. They were training for the tourists, for the spectators, Sparta had become a theme park, a living history exhibit. Heck, there was even a hotel nearby so that the rich elites from Rome coming out to see the quaint Spartans and their backwards traditions would have a place to stay. We know this happened because Cicero writes about taking the vacation trip. You know, oh, I went to see Sparta. It was really messed up actually. They would watch the Gay, especially the ritual whipping of young Spartan men and cluck and shake their heads at the viciousness and brutality of it all. This is what Sparta was reduced to, putting on a display of fetishized cruelty for their rich conquerors. They didn't go out with a bang or a whimper, but as a theme park, the colonial Williamsburg of the Roman Empire with the spicy ingredient of public torture. Nothing better sums up the end of Sparta's story than this, an image bereft of reality, the heirs of Leonidas performing for their new masters, Sparta had built their power through their PR department, and in the end, that myth was all they had left. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, it was a long episode today, but I think I crammed most of Sparta's military history into one package for you guys. Maybe this one took you a couple days to get through, but hopefully you enjoyed it. It should be blindingly obvious to you by now that I am not on board the Spartan hype train. I take a very dim view of Sparta's military reputation and its place in American public life. Because to be honest, guys, the closest analog I can think of to the Spartan regime, the closest modern equivalent is, well, Nazi Germany. I don't make that comparison lightly at all. I really hate people comparing everything to the Nazis, but there's a lot of resemblance. The Nazi vision of the future bears a strong resemblance to the actuality of Spartan society. Hitler praised the Spartan system, its eugenics, its militarism, its obsession with violence and cruelty, and how it had subjected entire races of subhumans, quote-unquote, into slavery. Because, hey, let's review. Spartan society, far from being a model Greek community that produced model citizens and great soldiers, was a horrible system, even by the standards of the day, full of cruelty, torture, rape, murder, and oppression. Even other people of the time thought it was messed up. And as we have seen, all this brutality, all this misery, all this nastiness and inhumanity resulted in a slightly better than average phalanx. And even that wasn't enough to keep the Spartans from being smashed like a beer can at Leuctra. So far from being a tough training system that may have gone a little too far but still produced the ancient world's best warriors, the Spartan military regime was an authoritarian hell state that didn't even maintain military effectiveness, the only thing it was built for. It's hard to imagine that this horrible society would have been worth it, even if it did produce super soldiers, and it didn't. And the biggest weakness of the Spartan military system was that it could not adapt, it could not improve it could not evolve with the times to accommodate changes in warfare or to replenish sparta's declining citizen population the lycurgan constitution was completely inflexible and this created a military that was completely inflexible i'm not saying the spartans never innovated never ever they tried but they always snapped back to the old ways the system always held them back because any major innovation in warfare would necessarily involve changing Sparta's social structure. When you wed your military system too close to your social system, it constrains your ability to adapt and improve. The army was the society, and vice versa. But when their society relied on such a rigid interpretation of laws and traditions, as well as that enormous fear of a slave uprising, any tiny quiver in that system was fiercely resisted, and it cost them. Military history is not separate from social history or economic history, which is why I spent the entire first part of this episode talking about the Spartan society and economy. Every military is a reflection of the society that produces it. The Spartan military reflected the Spartan society, and it failed for the same reasons its society failed. When people in the modern day praise the Spartan values in the Spartan way, talk about Spartan challenges and Spartan discipline and Spartan creeds, I think they're speaking from a place of ignorance. Because you cannot separate all the macho Spartan stuff from the appalling, ghastly society that produced it and eventually destroyed it. But the fact is that people still do name everything after the Spartans, still use Spartan symbols and Spartan sayings, and talk about the Spartans as the world's greatest warriors. And it all comes down to Thermopylae. Somehow, the Spartan PR department spun a massive, unnecessary defeat into the cornerstone of this myth. After all, who remembers the 800 thespians who sent almost their entire city's levy to Thermopylae, all of whom also died there? Who remembers all the helots who, unarmored and with no military training, also died to a man? No one. No one remembers them. We Remember the 300, because only they had a PR department. The thespians only got their monument at Thermopylae in 1997. But there's never going to be an 800 movie. There's never going to be a helot movie. This myth, guys, the Spartan mirage, the Spartan image, the Spartan legacy, is built on a lie. It's one of, if not the most successful propaganda coups in the history of humanity. I have no illusions that I'm going to shatter this lie on my lonesome. James Houser is not the first and won't be the last person to point out the cruelty and mediocrity that is under the mask of Thermopylae. But if you take anything away from today's episode, it should be the enduring power of myth the power of what everybody knows or thinks they know about history, and that people in the past had a vested interest in being seen and remembered a certain way. They shaped the narrative in their own time, and sometimes it was so effective that we don't even question it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do the Spartan races or support a Spartan team or call your army unit Spartan company or whatever. I'm not saying you can't watch and enjoy 300. I'm saying that when you watch it, you are seeing the version of events that the Spartans wanted you to see. You're looking at the greatest victory the Spartans ever won. The victory over the future. The battle isn't their triumph. The very existence of the movie is. The propaganda survives. Sparta is dead. Long live the Spartan PR department. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope that if nothing else, you're willing to rethink the next time you buy a bag of coffee with what's supposed to be a Spartan helmet on it. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, Tell your enemies, and if they're not willing to listen, maybe it's time to deepen your phalanx. If you want to read some other stuff I've written on Sparta, especially on the Persian and Peloponnesian Wars, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. Heck, you got hate mail? Send it my way. And finally, pack your bags, but we're not going too far. Next week, we're going to stay in Greece, but skip ahead about a century. We're going to meet a slightly psychotic king named Pyrrhus of Epirus and figure out why his name is slang for a victory that just isn't worth it. So join me next week on Unknown Soldiers.